think I told you chapter 11, but we're in chapter 12. Amen? One chapter over. John chapter 12, and we finished chapter 11 last week as we're just going verse by verse through the gospel of John. We've been working on this gospel for almost two years now, and there's just so much there, and I feel like we've not even done it justice, but we just want to be faithful to study. As we read, we're going to look this morning just at the first eight verses here of John chapter 12. If you don't mind, let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom He raised from the dead. There they made Him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with Him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and, appointed the, uh, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and washed his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Let's pray together as we jump into our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together. We thank you for the wonderful time in Sunday school and the question and answer time as we, as we tackled some of the difficulties of Scripture and we looked at where the Word of God teaches us about eternal security. Lord, we're so grateful that we can trust in your book. Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us your Word. Lord, you've given us the truth. Lord, I pray now as we study John's gospel and as we look to see what we can learn from it, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what's being preached, what's being taught. Help us not to preach our own opinion, but to be faithful to preach your book. Lord, I pray as we sing the praises this morning and as we say hallelujah to your name, we're so grateful as we enter this season of thanksgiving Lord, I pray that You would encourage our hearts, stir us up to live for You in a way like we've never lived for You before. We love You, Lord. We thank You so much for loving us. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And Jesus here has returned to Bethany to observe the Passover. Mary here, we know the story, just as an overview, is sacrificing the ointment that she has saved, and Judas' heart reflects his true nature and his true attitude. In order to better understand what's taking place in this passage, we need to take a look at this same account in the other Gospels where it's recorded as well. So, turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And we're going to read this same account in Matthew 26. And then we're going to look at Mark 14. So, Matthew 26, look at starting in verse number 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And when His disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? 
For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, He said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Look now at Mark chapter 14. You'll see some differences and similarities. Obviously, the Lord used the Holy Spirit to inspire these three men to write this account. But I want us to look at Mark 14. This is the other account. So we have it in Matthew, we have it in Mark, and we have it in John. This account is absent from the Gospel of Luke, and there's an important reason behind that, which Lord willing... We'll have time this morning, but if not, maybe we'll come back to it at a later date. But I want us to look at Mark 14, starting in verse 3. Mark 14 and verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But, ye, but me ye have not always." She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Back to John's Gospel, chapter 12 now. We've looked at the other accounts, and that'll be important as we study out this passage. But back to John chapter 12, and where our text is this morning. This passage covers the weeks prior to Jesus' death and burial. If you'll remember, if I'm not mistaken, John up through chapter 12 covers the ministry of Christ. And then starting in chapter 13 through John's Gospel 19, we have a 24-hour period. And so we're almost to the place of John 13 where it starts uh, the 24-hour period that leads up to the death of the Savior. But in John chapter 12, we have something that is happening. This is the feast of the Passover. The Passover came uh, and it was upon them. And Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. His own death, as one commentator would state, is now in full view. Present, no doubt, to his heart as he had walked with Mary to the tomb of Lazarus to perform that great miracle to raise Lazarus from the dead. Scripture opens this 12th chapter of John with the account of Jesus being anointed unto His death. This is significant because of what anointing meant 
in the Scripture. Turn with me to John or Genesis 31 very quickly. Genesis 31. In verse number 18, no, I'm sorry, Genesis 28, boy, I'm sorry, Genesis 28, and verse 18, Genesis 28, verse 18, Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall, the Lord, uh, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that shall be given me, I will surely give, unto thee, uh, give the tenth unto thee. So we have Jacob pouring with oil on this pillar in order to specify a, something special about it, in order to specifically set this pillar aside as a remembrance as he makes the vow in verse 20 and 21. This is significant when you see the oil. You've often heard it referenced the oil of anointing or the anointing oil. The oil was used to anoint things for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. Now I want to take a side note here and I want us to point out that it is specified in the passage that we saw this morning or that we're looking to this morning that Jesus specified rather that He was anointed unto His what? Death. You gotta, I need interaction this morning. All right, I need you to help me out. He was anointed unto his death. And so we recognize that he was anointed unto his death, and that is significant because he was not anointed at this point in time to be king, which we know he is the rightful king to sit upon the throne of David. Amen? That's what the Scripture teaches us. But he was still anointed he was anointed unto his death. This promise, this anointing oil. Look at Exodus 31. Look at Exodus 31. Look at Exodus 31. Verse... Number eight, and the table and his furniture and the pure candlestick with all his furniture and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all his furniture and the laver and his foot uh, and the clothes of service and the holy garments of, for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister in the priest's office and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded thee shall they do." 
God is giving account through Moses of the tabernacle that, and how it was to be set apart and how it was to be structured, how the priests would be clothed in a certain clothing. But there was also this anointing oil that was specified as necessary in the Old Testament. Now I'm trying to to not go too far into what without getting into uh, a whole other sermon because I want us to get to the main point. So I'm trying to filter through what's going to be important this morning to what we're looking at. Amen? So bear with me. Pray for me. But we see the anointing oil and ultimately the definition of this anointing oil was to consecrate by uh, with the use or unction of the oil. And so they used this anointing oil to consecrate things or to set them apart. I believe you're in Exodus 31. Look at Exodus 29, I believe it is. Exodus 29, look at verse 7. Exodus 29, verse 7. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. And shalt, thou shalt bring his sons and put coats upon them, and thou shalt gird them with girdles, Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them, and the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual Stay. And so we see this picture of the anointing oil that's used for Aaron and for his sons to set them apart, to consecrate them to the office of the priest. And so there are some importances. Exodus 28.41 and Leviticus 16.32 teach us that it was the purpose of consecrating something or someone to a specific use. Back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Jesus was anointed by Mary for His death. The ointment that was used was used to anoint Jesus. Look down at verse 7, John 12. Let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. And so Jesus was going to be anointed with this ointment for the purpose of being consecrated to death. He was going to be consecrated not just to death, but specifically to His burying. He was buried. The Bible says that He died, was buried, and on the third day rose again according to the Scriptures. Amen? A lot of time, That's the definition of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, people say, oh, the gospel just means good news. No, it doesn't. It means more than that. Hey, the cancer's gone. That's good news. Amen? Amen. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, as Paul preaches the gospel, it defines it in verse 3 and verse 4, and that he, was, uh, and that he died according to the Scriptures. He died for what? For our sins. But there's two other parts to that. He was buried. He's not still on the tree. He was buried. The burial is just as important. Amen? It's in the Gospel. But then according to the Scriptures, on the third day, He rose from the grave of His own power, of His own volition. And here we see the consecration, the anointing of Jesus Christ unto that death and that burial and then the resurrection as He defeats death. Now, I want us to notice three things this morning very quickly. Three things that we'll point out uh, in the passage in John's Gospel. 
First, I want us to notice the place of anointing. The first two things we'll go through rather quickly. And then the third one, we'll park there for a little while. All right? So I always try to be up front with you with what we're doing. First, I want us to notice the place of anointing. The place of anointing. Jesus, verse 1, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Bethany was a very familiar residence for Christ. Many miracles as, as well as much of His earthly ministry would be accomplished in or around Bethany. This was a village on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it seems that this was the location Jesus would stay when He came to Jerusalem for the feasts, the Jewish, uh, uh, for feasts or Jewish events that were accomplished in Jerusalem. Look at Mark chapter 11. Let's look there. Mark chapter 11. In verse 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when He had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, He was hungry, and He seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, He came, if happily, He might find anything thereon. And when He came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And so we see just one example among many of this place of Bethany, where when He went to Jerusalem, He would leave Jerusalem and stay in Bethany, and then come back to Jerusalem for the point of the feast and of the Jewish uh, events that would take place. This was a place where Jesus would go to prepare for the Passover uh, during the time of this text in John chapter 12. Six days prior to the Passover, Jesus enters to Bethany to prepare based on the instructions of Deuteronomy 16. Let's look at Deuteronomy 16. You say, why do we look at all of these passages of Scripture? Because I don't want you just to take my word for it. Amen? Amen. I want you to see that it's in the Bible. This isn't just what I'm saying. This is in the Scripture. The Passover is significant. And there were specific instructions that were given as to how the Passover was to be followed. Look at verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place His name there. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in, any, in all thy coast seven days. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrificed the first day at even remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover with any of the gate, within any of, the ga- of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee. But at this place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place His name in, there thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. 
And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt turn in the morning and go into thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. Now, without running a rabbit trail for the next half hour, this is significant. Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover. What did we just read in Deuteronomy 16, 1-8? Seven days they were to eat unleavened bread. At the beginning, before the Passover, seven days prior at even, they were to make a sacrifice, right? And the sacrifice was to be eaten, but with unleavened bread. And they were not to do any work for the next six days. And then on the seventh day, they would sacrifice the Passover. What's interesting about that, Jesus died as the sacrificial lamb on the Jewish Passover. Isn't that interesting? Why? Well, at the time, well, it's a picture, amen? What happened to Moses and the children of Israel as they were led out of Egypt, which is a picture and type of the world? They took the blood of the lamb and they sprinkled it upon the lentils and the posts. And as the blood would run, you would see it would make a cross almost, picturing, amen? And Jesus, so many thousand years later, on that same day, would be nailed on a tree and would shed His blood, not just for His nation, but for all the nations of the world. What a wonderful picture He's given. All of that from chapter 12 and verse 1, six days before the Passover, He came to Bethany. This preparation here that we see is outlined for us in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. Look at verse 55. The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to what? Purify themselves. For uh, John chapter 12, verse 2, is timeline-wise four days later from verse 1. So you have verse 1, then you have six days before the Passover. Verse 2, if my math is right, and there's no promise on that, amen, I pro I'm hoping. But verse 2, I believe, is four days later, two days before the Passover is to be observed. Matthew 26 and verse 2, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. That was in the Matthew account that we looked at, Matthew 26, but that was a few verses prior in verse number 2. So we have the place of anointing here in Bethany. The place also considering the time prior to the Passover. Now I, know, I want us to notice number 2, the audience of anointing. The audience of anointing. We're now reintroduced to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who we just looked at in John chapter 11 over the course of so many weeks. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, according to John chapter 11 and verse number 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. We know from Matthew and Mark, those accounts that Jesus' other disciples were there with Him as well, and they were in the place of one called Simon the leper. What could be more exquisitely blessed than its opening scene here in Matthew, Mark, and John? Love preparing a feast for its beloved. 
Martha serving now in His presence. Lazarus, who once was dead but now is alive, seated at the table feasting with the Savior with perfect composure and in joyous fellowship with the One who he called, who had called Him out of the grave. Mary freely pouring out her affection by anointing Him with costly spikenard, Him at whose feet she had learned so much. Together in the house of Simon the leper, not much is known about Simon the leper, but most would agree that this man was someone that Jesus healed of leprosy, hence the name. Since he hosted people in his house, we know that he no longer had leprosy. Look at Leviticus, well I'll read it, Leviticus uh, 13. Leviticus 13, 46 says, uh, uh, All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled, he is unclean, he shall dwell alone without the camp shall his habitation be. That's what leprosy did for people. They had to dwell without. They had to live alone. Obviously, Simon is hosting people in his home and his name has being known and recorded in Scripture as Simon the leper. He was obviously someone that Jesus had healed. Amen. Or no one would have been at his dwelling place. What a wonderful gathering of people. You have Martha who loved to serve God and now seated at the table. You have Lazarus who God had raised from the dead. You have Mary who loved to learn at the feet of Jesus. All together feasting in Bethany at the house of one Simon who was cured of leprosy by the Savior. Martha who had been burdened with much business and reminded by Jesus to take time and to sit at His feet like Mary and enjoy His presence. Lazarus, Mary... Martha, Simon. It's interesting to note though then with this wonderful group of people, verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Anytime I see his name, I don't know about you, but anytime I see his name in Scripture, it causes me to kind of just step back. Not out of fear for Judas, but just out of fear for him. What's coming what he would do, what he was capable of. The link, before we jump ahead between John 11 and 12, is, is a very precious link. There we have in figure one of God's elect, Lazarus, who was a Jew, passing from death unto life. And here we are shown that into which the new birth introduces us. Lazarus sitting at meat with the Lord. What a wonderful picture that is of our own lives prior to salvation. Us who were dead in trespasses and sins, just like Lazarus, buried, people mourning over him, decay. Remember the words of a sister, surely Lord, he stinketh. That was you and I. And then the Savior steps in. And as Jesus cried out unto Lazarus with that loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! So with the Word of God, He says, Believe, and ye shall be saved. So He says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now if we have accepted that free gift of salvation, we've been wonderfully given. If we have just taken part and with the heart uh, man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made of the Lord Jesus. If we have done that, then we are just as Lazarus seated in the presence of the Lord, feasting with Him. 
looking forward to that wonderful day. Now in Christ Jesus, Ephesians says, Ye who sometimes were afar off, now we're made nigh by the blood of Christ. This is the marvel of grace. Redemption brings the sinner into the presence of the Lord, not as a trembling culprit, but as one who is perfectly at ease in the presence of the Savior. A joyful worshiper of the King. It is this which Lazarus sitting at the table with Christ so sweetly speaks of. And yet, the opening scene of John 12 looks forward to that which is still more blessed. The resurrection of Jesus. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Judas Iscariot. There's much known about the act of sacrifice that Mary showed toward Christ very quickly. We know, first of all, letter A, if you're taking notes, if you want, or bullet point, whatever. We know the sacrifice was costly. 300 pence would have been about a year's pay for most commoners during this time. This great expense was due to the import, the import of the spike nerd from India in alabaster jars. Something that we learn very quickly that we must remember is that serving Christ is often costly, but it's worth it. Serving Christ, worshiping Him, humbling ourselves before the Lord, it is costly. Why? Because we have to set aside our own ambitions. We have to set aside our own pride and recognize who He is. Is much like prior to our acceptance of the salvation, recognizing that Jesus is the Christ and the only way to heaven is through His death, burial, and resurrection. It's going to cost us something sometimes. For me to live is Christ, Paul said, but to die is gain. Not only was this sacrifice costly, but it was humbling. Bowing down at the feet of Jesus and using her hair to dry His feet was the sign of great love and great humility. To lower oneself before the feet of Jesus is a recognition of who He is. James 4 and verse 10 tells us to humble ourselves. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. Not only was it costly, not only was it humbling, but Scripture shows us this This sacrifice of ointment was necessary. Jesus told them to let Mary continue because she recognized the death that was coming. As we look at all three accounts, as we've read them briefly this morning, it's very clear in Scripture that she recognized the truth of what Jesus had been teaching. Maybe because when He was there in their home, she sat at His feet. Remember Martha, who was burdened with so much service and burdened with so much care. Where was Mary? Jesus, could you not reprimand Mary? All she's doing is sitting. Look at all that I'm working. And Jesus said, Oh, but Martha, Mary has done that, which is to be greatest because she is spending time in My presence. Obviously, Mary understood some things about Christ because it is, not, it is against the day of His burying that she kept this. I believe Mary knew that His death was coming. It wasn't something He kept secret. He told His disciples about it. He told them He was going to die. Peter said, not so, Lord. Wait, hold on. Not so. They'll have to kill me too. Mary's heart anticipated what lay deepest in His even before the found expression in the words of John 13 and verse 31 
Therefore, when He was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. She not only knew that He would die, but she apprehended the infinite preciousness and value of that death. And how more fittingly could she have expressed this than by any other means but anointing His body to the burying. There's another that we've already mentioned briefly as we come now. I want us to notice not just the place, not just the audience, but the indignation of the anointing. The indignation of the anointing. A man once asked a theologian, what did Jesus, why rather, did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? It's a question I've often considered. Amen. Why in the world? Knowing who Judas was, knowing what Judas was capable of, knowing what was going to happen, why would Jesus choose Judas to be his disciple? To which the man replied insightfully, I do not know, but I have an even harder question. Why would, Judas, why would Jesus choose me? Oftentimes we look at Judas in that light and we go, I know who Judas is. I know what he's capable of. I know what he's going to do. He's going to betray the only begotten of the Father. Why in the world would Jesus choose him to be his disciple? To which we can only reply, just like the theologian, well, why does he choose any of us? Why does he offer his salvation to any of us? When considering the account at hand, we turn now to Judas to glean some insight and we're almost done. First, I want us to notice he was very good at pretending. Judas was very good at pretending. Scripture records that Judas was not concerned with the poor in the least. Look at verse number 6. Or verse number 5. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Verse 6. This he said... Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He wasn't concerned with the poor. He was a thief. He had the bag and bear what was put therein. Now we know what that word bear means from Scripture. He kept it. That's what he did. He had the bag. He had the money. He kept what was put therein. The Scripture says he wasn't worried about the poor at all. He was a thief. He was very good at pretending. We, often, we are often ourselves great deceivers when it comes to the Christian life. We have the part down to a science and know exactly what to say and when to say it. But I want us to look at 2 Timothy 3. Turn with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, as we look at it together. Look at verse number 1. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, bolsters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. 
traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and ne- never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse, verse 8. I want us to see this. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. We're not reading about saved people here. We're reading about those who are pretending to be such. We're not reading about Christians. How do we know that? Because they're compared to Janus and Jambres. And the latter part of verse 8 says, reprobate concerning the faith. Now we've studied this out as we look at Romans chapter 1 and we study out the word reprobate. A lot of people think reprobate means that God has rejected them, but it's rather quite the opposite. They have rejected God. And God has given them exactly what they have asked for, a rejected mind. They would not look to God. They would not believe in God. They have become fools in their heart. And they have turned from the ways of God. They follow, they fall suit into the list of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and they are defined by verse 5, having a form of godliness. They look the part, they talk the part, they smell the part, they act the part outwardly, but have denied the power thereof. Where's the power? Jesus Christ. They've denied Him. They think that they're good enough on their own, but yet their life is filled with sin and debauchery. And just like Judas, they are liars and they are thieves. This sort, verse 6, are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts. Those that would come on your television and tell you that you can live any life that you want and God is still pleased with you are nothing but liars and hypocrites. The Bible teaches us that yes, once saved, always saved, but God expects something of His people and it is a word that He uses to define Himself and that word is holy, holy, holy. Holy, being set apart sanctified, separated for a specific use. God wants to use His people. Judas fits this description perfectly. How many will face Christ and wish that they could give the same excuses that they give to the preacher? Amen. How many lost people would turn and snarl whenever someone comes to them that is a Christian and tries to tell them about the only way to eternal life is through the love of Christ, through His death, burial, and resurrection. And they turn their backs and say, I'm good. Why? Because they know that it's going to cost them something in their life. They don't want to turn over to Christ. The Bible says that just like Janice and Jambres They resist the truth. They are of corrupt minds. And they're reprobate.
concerning the faith. But notice verse 9 tells us their future. They shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men. How many times as Christians do we resemble this passage? Now that's a different story, isn't it? How many times as Christians do we resemble the world? Oh, I believe in Christ. I love the Lord. I've accepted Him as my Savior. I, I, I believe in Jesus and I, I, I believe that I can't get to heaven on my own. And Lord, I turn from my sins and I trust in You and that's a wonderful thing and You've accepted Him. But how many of us have lived this life where we've rejected God and His life and what He would have for us? Oh, maybe we've accepted the free gift of salvation, but we've rejected His will for our own physical, earthly desires and pursuits. Not living a life of holiness, not living a life that's sanctified unto God, but living a life of selfishness. Thieves, just like Judas. Oh, pastor, I, I, can't, I can't serve there. I, I can't do that. Hey, we're not going to be here this week. How many times have we made excuses before our friends and before our family and before our Sunday school teachers and before our parents and before our pastor? Let's replay those excuses before an almighty God. Amen. Judas Iscariot, a thief and a liar. He fits this description perfectly. Why? Because he was good at pretending. Pretending to be a Christian. Pretending to follow Christ. Notice number two, he was not alone. He was not alone. We look at Judas Iscariot and we snarl our noses and we, we kind of do this number because we think we're at least better than Judas. We haven't betrayed the Savior. We wouldn't turn him over to the religious leaders of our day for 30 pieces of silver. No, 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 we would never do that. But the Bible tells us in Matthew and Mark, the other disciples were there too. Look at Matthew 26. Very quickly, Matthew 26. Let's look at that passage. Look at verse number 8. Matthew 26 and verse number 8. But when His disciples saw it, they had indignation. They had indignation. Scripture tells us they weren't alone. Judas wasn't alone in this. The disciples that were there, Matthew, uh, uh, Peter, amen, what about John? Andrew? I mean, just go through the list. The Bible says they were there. And they had indignation. This wasn't Christ, uh, or rather Judas alone. He, he wasn't alone in his indignation. He was the one that was outspoken. It was his heart that was known to be a liar and a thief. It was his heart that was known to be a thief because he had the bag and he didn't care about the poor. But all of the disciples mirrored his response. They all, it says they, plural, had indignation for Mary and for the anointing 
Well, we could have sold this, made some profit on it. Oh, but God, we're, Jesus, we'll do some good things with our profit. He wasn't alone. Third and finally, what made Judas so important was his reaction to Jesus' response. And third, and we're done. We noticed that he was monetarily minded. You know, that was, that was Judas' problem. He was monetarily minded. A lot of people say, oh, he, he didn't like Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to come and give a, a, an overruling of the Roman Empire and, ta and be the Messiah that they were looking for that was like a Moses. That's who the Jews were looking for. They were looking for another Moses who would lead them out of captivity of the Roman government and would rule and reign and they would become their own nation. That's what the Jews were looking for. That's not what the Bible teaches Judas was concerned about. Very specifically, we find the heart of Judas here in Matthew uh, 26 and Mark 14 and John chapter 12. Judas was a thief. He had the bag of money. Look at Matthew 26. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, one of the chief priests, and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. This is a hard passage. Because while we don't often say it outwardly like that, our lives do reflect it. Hey, what will you give me so that I may find opportunity to betray Him? What would you give me, employer, so that I could turn my back on Christ and follow after monetary pursuit? Right? Amen. Don't look at me like a calf at a new gate. We've all been there. All right, remember, there's four uh, on each hand. So eight point at you, two point at me. If I do this, they're all point at me, but two. Amen. This it, isn't This is all of us. This is where the what the Word of God teaches us. How often do we do this subconsciously, following the lead of Judas? Look at Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. I just, I can't, I, I can't get over Matthew 26 when he asks the Pharisees, what will you give me and I will give him to you? What will you give me? And I'll turn Jesus over. You can do what you want with him. What was one thing that was commonly known among the disciples about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish day, uh, or the Jewish leaders of this day? What was commonly known? They wanted Jesus what? Dead. John chapter 11, He left the city and didn't come back until John chapter 12, which was several days later, because they sought to stone Him. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. He couldn't rob Jesus of this precious ointment unto His death, and so in His indignation, and in His anger, and in His bitterness for what God had robbed Him of, He went to the Pharisees and He said, What do you give me? 
How often times have we gone through life and we feel like God has wronged us and we feel like God has done something against us and in bitterness we go to the world and with our attitude and with our actions we say, what will you give me and I'll turn my back on Him immediately. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No man can serve two masters. For either, either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a reference to money, a monetary lifestyle, a physical pursuit. Luke 16. Look there. Let's turn there. Luke 16. Luke 16, 13. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Well, it's the same passage as Mark 6. Let's keep reading. The Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they what? Derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before who? Men. But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Now, now who's speaking? That's Jesus. This isn't pastor's opinion. Amen? This isn't, well, you're reading into that. No, no. This is clear English. Amen? Let's look at it together. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is what? Abomination in the sight of God. You know what we esteem? Power. Glory. Praise. Money. Stuff. That's what we esteem. We've got to keep working because we need stuff. Hey, can, can I just share a personal example with you? Now, most of you know that I, I love iPhones. Amen, I do. Now, I know some of you think that's the beast. Amen, the apple is the apple of the Garden of Eden. Amen. First of all, it wasn't an apple that's nowhere in Genesis. I believe there's more scriptural proof to show that it was a grape. Amen. Don't, let's not go down that rabbit trail, but I just, just, just bear with me. All right? And again, that's opinion. There's no scripture. That's why I don't preach it. Amen. Because I'm going to preach that book. Alright, I'm trying not to run a rabbit trail. I'm trying to help us out. I love it. You know what I told... Every year, I say to ask them all, every year since I got the, for my first iPhone, that next year I upgraded, and I always upgrade and get the newest one. As soon as it comes out, I used to sit up... Now, I know some of you think I'm crazy, but some of you are just as crazy about trucks. Amen? And boats, and, 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 and goats, or whatever. I mean, I don't know whatever it is. Amen? Farm animals. So don't, don't, don't look at me like you're better than me, because you're not, alright? Amen. There's only one person here better than me, and she's sitting right there next to my daughter. Alright, amen. I promise you that. Amen. She's cooking my dinner, and I don't want her to poison it. Alright, amen. I love it. So every year I get, this year I've said, just like I've said for the past three years, I'm not upgrading. It's too much money, I'm not going to do it, my phone works fine. What happens, they introduce it, I want it. I'm trying to figure out a way to get it. 
well, if I move this, and yeah, I still owe a million dollars on that other one I bought last year, and uh, uh, if I can move this around, then I can get this, and I can return this. Maybe I can sell it on eBay and get maybe a third of what the new one caught. You, you see what I'm saying? Why? Because we've been programmed to believe we need what man deems to be admirable. I want the best job. We never stop to consider that that job is working every Sunday for the next five years. Amen. I want that promotion. Yeah, it might be thirty more thousand dollars a year, but it might take you out of this church. It might take you out of church altogether. And then all of a sudden, what do you have? You got little ones all around. You got teenagers and under in your home who look and well, mom and dad aren't faithful to church. Must not be that big of a deal. And then they never go to church. All for thirty thousand dollars a year. Amen. We start to make excuses, and we start why? Because we're looking at that which is highly esteemed by man. And what does the Bible say? That which man esteems, that which man lifts up, is abomination to God. That's what the Scripture teaches. So we look at Judas Iscariot. And we look at his actions. And we look at his life. And we go, how could he? And then we have to take a hard look at what he says. And how often we say the same thing. Oh, maybe not outwardly. Maybe not verbally, but with our actions. And with our heart. Oh, well... I know I need to be faithful to serve God. I know I need to read my Bible today, but man, I'm tired. I worked all day. I've only watched three hours of television tonight instead of, instead of five. Amen. 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 I pro- well, I'm not going to go there. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get in the flesh. I want to preach the Word. Amen. That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So here's the question. What drives your motivations? What drives our decision for future actions? Is it God's leading? Or is it what's highly esteemed among men? I'll share this illustration with you and then we'll we'll pray. Assistant pastor for seven years down in Florida. One of the men of the church. Very faithful man. I remember having this conversation many, many years ago with him. He's a football coach. And he was telling me, he said he's often struggled because he was always taught by his father, you make a commitment and and you follow through on that commitment. Amen? You make a commitment to football, to baseball, to sports, to your work. You make a commitment, you do that. But see, that was always back in the day when people, especially in this world, even the world respected Sunday. Amen? That was back when the world understood that, hey, look, it's Andy Griffith. Everything's shut down on Sunday. I still remember that episode. That guy comes into town and everything can't get his car fixed. Why? Because Wally ain't working on Sunday. Amen. You notice where Wally wasn't in that episode at church? He was sitting on his front porch reading the newspaper. He wasn't at church, but he was not working on Sunday. Why? Because it was understood. Now we live in a day to where all Sunday's just another day. Family comes over. Oh, can't go to church. We got to work. Oh, can't go to church. Oh, well, I've, I've, you know, I, see what I'm saying? We're making excuses. I'm just sharing some of the excuses I've used. I, I don't know what your excuses are. Amen? I, I'm not that smart to remember that, all of them. These are the ones I've used. Oh, I can't go. Oh, my stomach hurts. I can't go to church. Amen? I'm not talking about dire sickness. I'm talking about I had bad pizza last night and I just don't want to be uncomfortable in church. You see what I'm saying? 
we keep making excuses and excuses. And so he asked me the question. He said, my, he said, I don't know what to do because my sons, they've committed to football. I've told them they need to keep their commitments. But yet now they've got practice on Sunday afternoon and that's going to keep them from church. To which my response was, well, I guess the question is, which commitment's more important? The commitment you made to football or the commitment you made to God? Amen. Amen. Well, I guess he's going to have to sit at the bench the next game because he didn't show up to practice. You know what we call that? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know what's going to happen? You stand before God. Well, rather, we fall before His feet, the judgment seat of Christ. You're not going to stand before Christ. You're going to kneel down and you're going to just be in awe of Him and you're going to be in tears wishing that you had been more faithful. All of us. All of us will. But we have opportunity to make decisions every day. So then the question is, are we going to be like Judas and hold that which man highly esteems, which God looks on as abominable? Or are we going to be like Mary? Mary, who took probably for her a year's plus salary of ointment and that alabaster box and breaking it as Mark and Matthew teaches and anoints it, pours it on his head. That's what Matthew and Mark teach. You say, well, John says it... She poured it on his feet. No, no, it says she anointed his feet, but she broke it over his head. It ran down his body. His body was anointed. Then what did she do? She got down on her knees. She took her hair. She anointed the feet of Jesus. We've got Judas, who was a good pretender. He had the bag. He had the money. He had the finances. He looked the part. He was a disciple. And then you have Mary, who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, who knew the time of his death was near and who wanted to sacrifice for Him because she was worth more to Him than one year's salary, than a little bit of ointment that would burn up in the end of days. So which one are we? Are we Judas or are we Mary? Every head bowed, every eye closed.